All right. Well, as I said earlier, we are doing our Advent readings in that way to actually sort of try to model what family worship, family discipleship, or devotion could look like. Uh, because I know for many of you guys, you, you've, you've heard the church talk about that, and you just really don't know like where to start because you've never seen it modeled, and so it's sort of daunting. And then, and then how many of you have been tempted to give up whenever it just goes off the rails? How many of you have had to stop and discipline a kid during family devotions? Yeah. Right? It, just, it happens, right? And so we just wanted to encourage you. We wanted to sort of just not, you know, our kids are in here. We don't want to just tolerate the fact that our kids are in service. We want to engage them in the worship of the Lord. So um, anyway, I hope you're encouraged by that. Again, it's always chaos at my house. And uh, you throw a microphone in, and it's even more fun. So, um, but that's our hope. And it wasn't just a one-off deal, uh, just do that to light the candle. That actually is sort of part of our sermon, part of our, our sermon today, part of our time from our sermon is actually going to that, and so uh, the story they read is based on Genesis six through nine. So, as our focus for our sermon, we're going to look at part of Genesis eight and and um, and parts of nine. And so, if you would um, keep your Bibles open, look there with me. We just finished, so we got a little bit of work to do before we can get into that. But we're going to look at that and the covenant that God makes with Noah. And here's why. So we just finished a series called Kingdom Come. We spent about eight weeks looking at what is God doing in history and what is, what is he going to do in the future, right? What has he done? What is he doing? And what is he going to do? And what does all that have to do with what I do now, right? When it was really based off of when Jesus says to us that we should pray uh, and ask God in heaven to bring his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? What does that look like? So we've been looking at that. We've been looking at the second coming of Christ and what's gonna, what we can count on and what we can look forward to and how that informs us today. And I think it's so appropriate we go from that into Advent because it sounds good to look, at, look ahead at the new heavens and new earth and what Christ is going to do. Right? And we can get excited and rejoice at those realities and those promises. But then what happens a lot of times as we shift into everyday life we can, it can be difficult to keep believing, right? As, as life is hard, as the news is bad, and as things just get difficult, it can be hard to keep believing or to believe that that is ever going to come, right? That that day is ever going to come, that God is going to show up, that he is present. Those things can be difficult in the day-to-day. And so in Advent, we really practice as a church a season of waiting, and we relate to the people of God who, have, who waited for years and decades and generations for the Messiah, right? They waited and they were longing for, and it wasn't just a quick story that they told or even a month that they, they looked ahead to, to waiting for Christmas to get here, but it was hundreds and thousands, like they were longing for the coming of the Messiah. So we practiced that in the season of Advent, and we're actually going to shift, and we're, this, this year we're going to spend our, our series of Advent looking at the covenants of God. Covenants is just really another word for, it's, it's bigger than the word promise, but it's a lot like a promise. It's something where, we, where God makes a commitment, right? A, a promise to us where it really is what we can, we can base, like what we can expect of God, he, he makes known to us through a covenant. And sometimes there's agreement, uh, a partnership from the other side. And, and the one today, though, it's just God making a promise. And so we're going to look at the different covenants. God makes five major covenants. There's some other ones throughout the scripture as well, but he makes five major covenants. So we're going to work through those as we go through Ab- Advent this year today, starting with the, no- the Noahic, the covenant God made with Noah. And then we'll look next week at the covenant God makes with Abraham and then King David and then the, uh, the new covenant in Jesus. And so that's what our Advent series is going to look like. And the reason is because, like I said, when the darkness seems to be prominent in our life, what we need is a foundation of hope. What we need is a God of promises, and we need a trust and a hope that he will fulfill 
those promises. And so we're going to look at one of the first ones that he makes here today with Noah. So um, what we see in verse 20 of chapter 8, if you look there with me, this is after Noah and his family get off of the ark. Noah built an altar in verse 20 to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the in- intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. And so the first, listen, this is an interesting scene because God has wiped out the earth because it was evil and because of man's sin. And as the people that he preserved, Noah and his family, as they get off of the ark, they, they, uh, they make a sacrifice, an offering, and God uh, responds to it by saying, okay, I'm never going to do this again. But why? Does he say, I'm never going to do this again because everything's going to be good now? No. He says, I'm never going to do this again because man is still evil, and it, they're going to be from the time of their youth, and all, like all, it's not changed. And so this is a curious sort of, it's not real celebratory. It's not like, okay, everything's good now. God's really saying, you know what? Man's always going to be evil. Their intent is always bent towards sin. And so I'm not going to do this again, but there's a reason, right? And we're going to get into that in a moment. But the first thing that we have to look at, the first lesson that we have here is we actually have to look at what happened, right? He's committing not to do something again. We have to remember what he has done. So this comes right after the flood, the story that we read earlier. And listen, the Jesus Storybook Bible does a pretty good job of not fluffing that story up too much and make and kind of, you know, cleaning it up so it's just real kid-friendly. It talked about the evil that, that, that happened and how God killed all those people. But listen, that's a danger that we have sometimes. We take the, the story of Noah and the ark, and we sort of put animals around it, and we make, turn it into this happy story, when in reality this is a, it's a horribly tragic and dark story of judgment, isn't it? You realize what's happening in Genesis 6? That God is, is literally flooding the earth and he kills every living thing on it, save Noah and his family and the critters that he took on the boat with him. It's an incredibly dark and difficult story to read. Right? I want you to think about that. This is not a story of, of just happy animals and you know, color and things like that. This is a story of, of judgment. This is a story of people losing their life. This is a story of people crying out for help and for mercy and for that opportunity being over. God's patience has run out and they are suffering, running for high ground as they drown in the flood. I, I joked a few years ago, somebody suggested the idea of kind of painting our hallways in the Journey Kids uh, area with pictures of the flood and you know Noah's Ark. And I said, that's fine as long as you put like bodies in the water. It's got to be realistic, and they thought that was a little bit dark. But I'm kind of serious. Like, we don't want to overfluff that story and lose the impact of what God is actually saying here because the big idea is that man's sinfulness, man's wickedness is so offensive to a holy and righteous God that this was his reaction, that this was his reaction to the wickedness of man. And we get offended at that idea sometimes. People in our culture get offended at the idea of, of God being a God of judgment or of punishment. People say, how dare God um, send people to hell? How unloving would it be for, for the God that you claim is so loving to send people to hell? So it's, it's, you've heard something like that. People don't like the idea of, of God bringing justice against 
evil. They like the idea of him bringing justice against the oppressed, but they don't necessarily like the idea of him responding and giving judgment and punishment to our sin. The idea of hell in particular is very offensive in our culture, and and we're pretty familiar with people sort of having that response, um, being offended at the justice and the judgment of God. But let me ask you this. How often do we or do people in our culture get offended at the idea of forgiveness? Because if we're honest, both of those truths are scandalous and, and offensive to our, you know, entitled selves. I think of the speech that Rachel Denhillander gave at the sentencing of Larry Nasser. If you're not familiar with the story, Dr. Larry Nasser was a man of, of great evil that sexually molested many, many young girls as a doctor that worked for, I believe, the University of Michigan and uh, with Team USA in gymnastics and, uh, and was convicted of doing that for years and years and years. And Rachel Denhillander was one of the chief plaintiffs in that case that pushed that case forward. And um, she herself had experienced that abuse and she was the champion that brought all that to light. And at the hearing, she read an incredible statement of her own. And one of the things she said she looked at him in the eye and she said, there is a special place in hell for someone as evil as you. I'm paraphrasing here. And I think in that moment, nobody's real offended by that. Everybody sort of agrees. that she said something else because she's a believer in Jesus Christ. And she said at the same time, because of the, the God I serve, because of the gospel of Jesus, there's actually forgiveness for a man like you. And I hope that you find it. Now, both of those things are true. Both of those things are pretty offensive, though. Both of those things are sort of hard to swallow. And a lot of times this is informed by our culture and our context, right? While we here in the West struggle with the idea of God judging and punishing anyone, many cultures in the East don't have any issues with that, right? Many cultures have no issue. They're quite familiar with and comfortable with a God who is going to dole out justice at the end of the, the deal. And in fact, they count on it. But they, what is offensive to many of them is the idea that God for, could forgive someone who they deem unforgivable. That's offensive to many other cultures. So in order to understand the flood, we can't start by thinking, man, how could God do something like that? Instead, we have to look at it the other way around. How could he not? We have to look at it, and how how could he spare anybody? How could he not just wipe the whole deal out and wash his hands of it and be done with this whole deal that he calls earth, his creation? It's no longer good. We've ruined it, and, and yet... He doesn't. He spares Noah and his family. How could he even think of starting over? And for us, like we have to look at it the same way. Instead of how, thinking, how could God send anyone to hell? How could he be such a God? We need to start with the other way around. How could God save any of us? How could he save any of us? We all deserve hell. That's where we start. That, that's zero sum of our life. Like We all are on our way, fully deserving to eternal punishment in hell because of our sin. Because we've rebelled against God, a holy God. The Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. So here's the deal. The doctrine of sin is the first thing that we have to understand. If we're going to rejoice in the promise that is to come, and we're going to get to that, we have to first start by understanding the doctrine of sin and the need for the promise. In order to celebrate the beauty of Advent, we must first understand the need for the Advent. Let me put it this way. 
if you only kind of maybe sort of need help, then you're not that excited when help shows up. Right? If you just sort of need help, then somebody shows up, like, that's good news, but you're not that excited. Uh, I'll put it this way. I've got a project at home. Uh, uh, my back deck, which is fairly large, has to be replaced. All the floorboards have to be replaced. And I've been working on it for a few weeks. And it, and it was urgent to a degree because some boards that were, like, breaking and falling through. So I had to fix those. But you know what? I've got those fixed, and now there's a couple sections that need to get done, but it's not that urgent, so I'm not that crazy about it. But here's the deal. I got some promises from my dad and a couple other people that when I need them or, or that they're going to show up and help. And, and, and they have and they will. And, and so but here's the deal. When they show up, it's not that exciting to me because I could do it without them. I'll get it done eventually. Right? Not quickly, but I'll get it done eventually. But it, so when they show up, yes, I'm grateful, but I'm not that excited. Why? Because I could do that by myself. And a lot of us, man, that's how we view God. We think we got, our, we got our life covered, right? We could use a little help if he's offering. Right? But, but overall, like, you know, we've got it covered. Again, if he's offering, maybe I, maybe I could benefit from this church thing. Right? I'll come check it out. Maybe God could, you know, make my life a little bit better. I'll, I'll come see. When the reality is the Bible teaches us a much different story about our condition. It's much more along the lines of me being homeless with my wife and four kids as the weather turns and it's getting colder and it's raining and we have no hope. I have no resources. I have no way to get out of that mess. I have no shelter for my family. I have no money to buy food. I have no clothes to keep them warm. And as each day passes, we grow more and more desperate because we have no hope and we are lost. That's more the condition that the Bible tells you that we are in when it comes to our, our sinful souls in need of a saving God. And when, when, when hope shows up in that condition, I'm not just like, eh, great. No, no, I'm overwhelmed with gratitude, right? I'm longing for hoping that someone could show up and meet our need. And when they do, I'm overwhelmed and I'm, I'm willing. Like I, my response is much different than, well, I mean, I, I had that, but I'm glad you're here, right? It's a totally different thing. And we have to understand that we are much more in the second condition than the first. That we are not sinners that, you know, we mostly got it together and we need him to kind of push us over the edge. The Bible says that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. That we are without hope. And it is that state that God responds to when he sends Jesus. But that is that state that we see the world is essentially a lost cause. The Bible says that all... Like, that's, what, that's why God flooded the earth in Genesis 6. He's because everybody was doing evil all the time. And, and God was grieved that he made us, he says. And so he flooded the earth. And so we have to start there by understanding that the doctrine of sin, the desperateness of our condition, if we're truly going to be grateful for the intervention of Advent, we have to start by understanding our need. The first lesson of the flood is the doctrine of sin. Advent makes no sense without Sin, because Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He said it himself. I'm not here. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, right? But the sick. I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. I've come to give my life as a ransom that I might seek and save sinners. I come in the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. If that doctrine is rejected, then the meaning of the flood collapses and the Advent season just becomes a prelude to a pretty little fairy tale. But if we're going to let our hearts be stirred to worship this Advent season. We have to start by understanding that we are in desperate need, and outside of Jesus, we have no hope. 
That's the first lesson of the flood, is that the heart of man is desperately evil and wicked, and the flood is an appropriate response, and hell, eternal damnation, and hell and suffering is an appropriate response to our rebellion to a living and holy and righteous God. The second thing we can learn from the flood as we pick it up in verse 22 is God, even even in that state, he makes this this promise, I'm never going to do it again, he said in verse 21, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And then if we skip down to uh, verse 8 of chapter 9, he says this to Noah, uh, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring and with every living creature that is with you and the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth is, that is with you as many as came out of the ark. For it is every, every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make bet- between me and you and every living creature for all generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and all the earth. So God says, okay, never going to do this again. And, and I'm not just saying this in a whim. I'm going to make this covenant promise to you, Noah. I'm never going to do this sort of judgment again. Never again will I destroy the earth by water, by a flood. And, and here's, here's what we hear in this. Here's what we see in this. And really, we didn't read 9, 1 through 8, but what we see is this sort of a recommissioning. It it's, sounds a lot like Genesis 1 and 2, whenever God makes the earth and he commissions them to, to go forth and you know, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it and, and you know, cultivate. That whole, it sounds a whole lot like that. God's, he's started over. He's wiped out the earth and he's recommissioning them. And so it's mirroring that. But what he's saying is he's making this commitment that he's not giving up. He's not surrendering his plan and his reason for creating man in the first place. He made us in his image for his glory. He made us so that we would fill the earth and subdue it and that all the earth would be filled with his glory because we're his image bearers are, are going forth and, and, and living as his ambassadors, right? Living and ruling on earth. That was his purpose, that this earth would be filled with his glory, with his people, and he's not giving up on that, and that is good news. What he's saying is, I will sustain the earth to accomplish my purposes, so the story's not about us, right? It's about him and his purposes. He said, I'm not giving up on him. Just because you guys have blown it, I am not giving it. In fact, I'm going to double down on my promise, and I'm going to sustain the earth to fulfill my promises. Now, I can't elaborate a ton on this and get into apologetics, but I think it does, this does offer us just a ton of really, or just a couple of practical hopes. Whenever he says this, he says, listen, the earth is going to remain. The seasons are going to stay. I, I'm going to make sure that this thing pers- is preserved until the end. And here's, here's a, a couple of things I think this gives us, in, particularly in the environment that we live in. Uh, when we have a talk of, and there's constant talk, right, of the environment in our world. And I, I don't mean to diminish that, but I think that the Bible should inform that, right? When we have talk, like in, in our world that is increasingly polarized, right, and any mention of an issue causes so many of us to go to our, our political positions and discuss from there, I would invite you instead to to run to the Bible, right, and to look at things through the gospel lens and then discuss from there. 
And I think we'll find ourselves, we're not always running to a pole. But here's the deal. When, this is a polarizing conversation, right, about global warming, about the environment, about how sustainable this world is. And what we have is a, is a promise from our God saying, I made this deal, and I'll sustain this deal. Now, what this means is we should have, like, this should inform how we view stewardship of the earth. This doesn't excuse our lack of stewardship of the earth. It doesn't excuse us to do whatever we want or to not care about it. It informs how we approach it. Meaning we should have hope in God as the creator and the sustainer, the preserver of this world, of this rock that we live on, right? But we should also look to be good stewards of it. So in a politically charged world that's extremely polarized about this conversation, we can have both hope, right, where we're not fearful that we are able to actually destroy this whole deal, that God's not just going to shut the lights out, you know, and, and it's going to, but at the same time, we can have wisdom and we can enter into conversations with gospel wisdom about stewardship and we don't have to go to different polarizing positions. In a wor- and then here's a, here's a second thing. In a world of evolutionary theories that are now presented as facts, right? Many of you have seen different varying degrees of evolution taught in schools. And some of you it was taught as a theory amongst, a, you know, a, an option. And then increasingly in my day we started seeing that shift in as, as sort of not a theory but fact. And, and, and now it's, I don't even know if, if public schools, you know, Give it a second thought. It's just sort of how things are from that presentation world. And so in a world where evolution is taught as the, the basis for our origin, and whenever much of that theology, much of that talk is, is based on the studying of soil and the earth and fossils and erosion and carbon dating and all of those things, listen, what you're going to hear is that they will often explain things about the earth that can only be true if the earth is millions and billions of years old. Right? And they have their methods, and not all of them are false, but, but here's the deal. They will say that over millions and billions of years, as rivers eroded different parts of the world, that's how we got the grandkids, like life was buried over time and turned into fossil fuel and et cetera. And the thing that they never factor in, they're always saying it has to be billions and millions, and I'm not a scientist, don't hear me say that. But here's the deal. The thing they never factor in is the impact that a global flood would have had on our world. Okay? Again, I can't unpack this a ton. I'm not an expert. It's not the main focus of the sermon. But just know that as you watch things like Planet Earth, which I think you should, right? My kids and I love watching those documentaries about our world. But every time they say things about, uh, you know, billions or millions of years, you can very often stop that and say to your kids, yes, or it was a global flood. Because so often the things that they're explaining away that had to take place gradually over billions of years could have also taken place if God flooded the earth to the capacity that it described in Genesis 6 and 7. And it's actually quite encouraging to have an alternative you know, explanation to some of the things they're putting forward. So here's the deal. So God's promising. He's saying, I'm not bailing on this deal. Right? That was the point of the last series that we just talked about, that God's not looking to just crumble this earth up, throw it away, and get us all into heaven. No, he's looking to, re, like he's remaking this deal. And I linked an article in your, uh, on your app on this weekend that sort of helps bridge that gap between uh, the Kingdom Come series, what we're talking about of a renewed and restored earth, and the story of Noah and the flood. So I want to encourage you to, to get into that. But here's the deal. God, he's promising. I'm not going to walk away from this deal. I'm not giving up on my 
purpose for making man. I'm not giving up on my purpose of fulfilling, of filling this earth with my glory. I'm going to preserve this. This is good news. This is good news. We don't have to worry about him just shutting off the switch or us just blowing it so much that this world, our environment ceases to exist. He promises that that won't happen. But it's not really complete. It, there, there's not resolution with the, within this story. God, they get off the ark. God says, listen, I'm never going to do that again. But mankind's still evil, right? Man's still evil and God is still holy. So there, there's something that, like, the whole reason that led to God flooding the earth, like, it's not, there's not actually been anything done about it. Because what we're going to see is that it's not just us who are evil, but it's, it's Noah and his family, too. And just in the next little bit of the story, Noah's going to blow it pretty quickly. It wasn't that Noah was a perfect man. He was righteous because it says that, that, he, that he loved God. He was a, he, like he walked with God. That means like when it says he's righteous and blameless in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean they've never done anything wrong. It means that they, they hate evil and they've turned from it. We, we see the same thing describing, about, uh, describing Joel or Job later in, in the story. And, and so Noah is not there as this man who's never sinned. In fact, he is a flawed and imperfect man, just like we talked about all of us are in this deal. And so that... We see that really quickly things go off the rails again. And so nothing has been done about the actual sin problem that led God to flood the earth in the first place. So in a, in a sense, the story is, is longing for an epilogue. It's, it's, it's early in the story of God's word, and, and, and it's pointing us ahead. It's longing for something else to come about. And the hint of what's going to come is not only in the... the uh, the reminder of the rainbow, which we see, verse 14, we, we see him talking about it. He says, verse 14, when I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all the flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth earth. <clears throat> He's saying, I'm never again going to do that sort of, I'm never going to destroy the earth again. I'm not going to destroy every creature again. But the question remains, but what about the evil? What about the, the sin? What about what led us here in the first place? And the clue of what is to come actually is in verses uh, 20 and 21 of chapter 8, when we see what when did this covenant response come from God? It came in response to an offering given by Noah. It says in verse 20, then Noah got off the ark and, and um, and he built an altar and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground because of man. In that, we see a response to a sacrifice, a pure sacrifice that's given by Noah. And, it, and God responds to that by saying, I'm never going to do this again. And is that just because God's just come to grips with sin? He's just like, you know what? These guys, are, they, they can't be helped. I'm just going to have to tolerate it. No. He has a different plan. It, and, he, and he's shifting our focus ahead to a greater plan. A day when his wrath would once again be poured out. But this time, not on the whole earth. Not on every living creature. Jesus' storybook Bible puts it really beautifully. It says this, God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death 
would come down once more, but not on his people or his world. No, God's war bow, the rainbow, was pointed not down at his people, but instead pointing up into the heart of heaven. Now, Genesis doesn't really say that that's God's war bow, but I think it, man, the rest of the Bible does. The rest of the Bible points us there, and it's very poetic and very beautiful to think that the rainbow, every time we see that, that's not only God's commitment to not destroy the earth again, that's not his commitment to tolerate sin, that's not his commitment to just get over this whole deal and let us coexist and do the best we can. No, no, no. That is commitment to preserve the earth, to accomplish his purposes, and one of his purposes is that sin will have to be dealt with. His wrath will have to be satisfied, and he has a plan for that. And as it says, it's not pointing down anymore. Instead, his war bow is pointing up into the heart of heaven, and here's what he's pointing to, a greater Savior, a greater salvation. It's, the ark is, is, is symbolic. The, the, the flood is symbolic of the eternal punishment that, that all of us are facing because of our sin, and the ark is our salvation. The ark is our Jesus. It's pointing us ahead to the day when Jesus would step in, as Galatians says, at just the right time. When the fullness of time had came, he stepped in to be here as our Savior to provide us salvation. Hebrews 9, 26 through 28 says this, For then he would have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, it's talking about Jesus and his sacrifice. As it is, he appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it was appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. That is the good news. That this story is pointing us ahead to the day when the first advent would come and Jesus would show up as the Savior, the one whom we had been longing for. Again, you have to have a posture of needing help. The Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who know they got nothing, know they are broke, know they are hopeless, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Because when you get in that position, then you're able to receive the salvation that Jesus comes to bring. Here's the deal. Church is not about... 10 ways to a better you. It's not what we're doing here. It's not what the Bible offers. It's not life lessons so that we can do things. No, no, no. It is the story of mankind rebelled against a holy God and lost in their sin and a God who loves them enough to step in and pursue them and provide a way to provide hope, to provide salvation. That's what Jesus has done. And so the, the message of the gospel is that you are the one who is broken and without hope and in need of a Savior. Not just a little bit of like, come help me, you know, do a little bit better. No, no, no. I have no hope. And when we cry out from that posture, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. The Bible says that we will be saved that we can escape the wrath of God, not because it doesn't exist anymore, not because he got over his whole anger issue. No, 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 because he poured it all out on Jesus. Jesus was born that man no more should die. What, is that just a fun line we sing? No, 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 Jesus was born so that he could die in our place. The, the wrath of God was poured out fully and wholly in that moment, and it was all on Jesus, and he absorbs it in full. And it takes him to the grave. And yet it had no hold on him because he had not sinned. 
He did not deserve that wrath. And so he comes bursting forth out of the grave. Christmas is only a big deal because we got Easter coming, right? If he was just born of a virgin, he just lived a good life, and he just gave his life, like, man, that, that doesn't provide us hope. But because he burst forth out of that grave, he conquered death, and he indeed is worthy to offer us salvation because he himself has, has conquered. That is the hope. And we live in between the two advents. We live in this tension of Jesus has come and his kingdom is already, but it's not yet fully. And, and so we live in between, yes, he's come and yes, he's made a way. And, and many people would look at the evil in the world and go, well, what's he waiting for then? Why is he, why is he not come back yet? Why, this whole deal's a mess. And, and the Bible says, listen, the reason he's not come back, it's out of kindness. And with God, one day is like a thousand, and a thousand is like one. Like, he's not feeling that. Like, instead, he's waiting out of his kindness, and his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Because he's not given up on his purposes for this earth. He will have his glory. He will have this earth full of his glory and his worshipers. He's going to get that at the end. The question is, are you going to get in the boat of Jesus? Are you going to get in the ark you're going to surrender your life and cry out and say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need you to save me. And I believe that you are that Savior because you conquered the grave. When you do that, the Bible says you pass from death to life. You are born again and you have a living hope. He's promised. And he's fulfilled those promises. Honestly, this is a promise that came from Genesis 3. Whenever he said the seed of a woman would come and crush the serpent. Like he allowed the line of the woman to keep going through Noah and his family so that that promise could eventually come in Jesus. And that's what we celebrate this Christmas, that Jesus came to be our Savior in the midst of an absolute hopeless situation. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful for the good news of the gospel. And I pray that your spirit would come and make it good news. You say elsewhere that it is, the, it is the stench of death to those who are in rebellion, who are unrepentant, but it is the stench of, of life. It is the smell of the aroma of, of life to those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that for those of us in the room that we would be stirred by the life that you came to give. And if we don't yet know you, Lord, if there's those here that don't know you as Savior, that you would stir, Lord, that you would give them the faith to respond, the conviction to know that they are a sinner in need of a Savior, and the faith to respond that you are indeed that Savior. Would you do that work this morning? And would you fill the rest of us with hope in the midst of a, a world that is indeed broken, a world that is indeed in need of preservation? Would you give us hope? Help us to be a people who look ahead, who look forward, and cling to your promises in the meantime. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.